Welcome to the On The Yard Podcast, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. I'm your host, Ashley Northington, and I'm here to connect you with the trends, news, and events happening across historically black and minority-serving colleges and universities. Tune in each week where we will give you a dose of HBCU leadership and culture, one episode at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to the On The Yard podcast, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. I am Ashley Northington, and I thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad you decided to listen in with us today. We have a very special guest who will share insights on what HBCUs can expect from the Biden-Harris administration. But before we get to that, I would like to share our HBCU fun fact. Did you know HBCUs generate $14.8 billion for their local and regional economies? The United Negro College Fund estimates this economic impact, which includes direct spending on HBCUs on faculty and staff, academic programs, and operations, as well as the spending by the students who attend the institutions. Every dollar spent at an HBCU generates an additional $1.44 in initial and subsequent spending, producing positive economic benefits for their communities. Now, let's jump in with our guest of honor. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Terrell Strayhorn, who serves as the Provost and Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at Virginia Union University. He is also a Professor of Urban Education and the Director of the Center for the Study of HBCUs. Dr. Strayhorn is the author of 11 books, including the forthcoming Charting the Future of Today's HBCUs. As the author of more than 200 peer-reviewed journal articles, chapters, and reports, his research focuses on access, affordability, racial equity, and student success in higher education. Welcome, Dr. Strayhorn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity to come. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to this um, exciting discussion and conversation. So proud of the work that you and your colleagues are doing in this podcast and looking forward to talking about the important role that HBCUs play. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. So before we get into what HBCUs can expect from the Biden-Harris administration, I'd like to start with a brief dive into your background. Can you share a little bit about how you decided to pursue a career in higher education and sort of what led you to the Center for the Study Absolutely. of HBCUs? So I like to, you know, chart that path in short form as, um, you know, I was, I tell my, my students, I used to say I was born on the streets of Virginia um, and I'm from Virginia Beach, so, you know, doesn't necessarily mean the, the roughest streets in the world, but um, they were paved roads and they were streets. And so I was born <laughs> in Virginia Beach, Virginia, um, went to high school, uh, graduated high school and realized that, you know, um, my strongest muscles were probably in my mind. And so I used those gifts and talents to gain entry to college, went to the University of Virginia. 
um, you know, earned bachelor's degree in religious studies and music, which simply meant I was going to have to go to co- uh, graduate school. And so when I thought about graduate school, um, <laughs> you know, I thought my grandmother had been a, had, when she was alive, she was a public school teacher for 54 plus years. I mean, she was a master teacher. So I grew up with this appreciation for education, but also learned as a substitute teacher in some other teaching stints that, you know, being in K-12 teaching in the classroom was probably not um, my place in the profession, um, that I wanted, I had way more questions than answers. And so graduate school became the place where I could develop the tools to answer important questions, especially the questions that had really shaped my own life around race and inequity and inequality and social justice and opportunity. So I Mm -hmm. got a master's degree in educational policy, a PhD in higher education, and then started my faculty career. And as I started really investigating these questions around, um, you know, what environments and supports are necessary for students like me to succeed. I realized that, yes, I was fortunate. You know, I have, I have wonderful parents. My mom and my dad, my grandmother um, helped raise me. And when I needed a graphing calculator, they made the sacrifice to get me one. When studying in my bed was not getting me to A's and B's, I will never forget the day that my gra- my mom cleared out the dining room table and told the whole family, we will not eat dinner in the dining room anymore because this is now Terrell's office. And I, and so throughout high school, there was a place for me to work um, uninterrupted, um, to spread out, to read and to, you know, synthesize learning in English with what I was studying in history. And I had the space to do it. I know that sounds really basic, right? But I got to tell you, um, and my mom, if she was here and she was your guest and probably she should be, um, she would tell you that was accidental. She just did what moms do for their kids and dads do. And that is they love them and they try their best to do what they can with what they've got. My mom couldn't um, necessarily afford everything that I needed in order to succeed, but she knew that she could devote a space in the home to that. And guess what message um, that sent to me as a young person? I now know as a professor, looking back, but as a kid, I didn't think about it. It meant in that one act, my mom showed me that education was important, that my success matters to her and my dad, and that they're here to support me. Um, Well, guess what? I've learned through my research that those pieces are the ingredients to success, not just for Terrell, for all students, especially students who show up in the world looking like me. Um, And I also learned this, and it gets to our, your, your second part of your question, that there are institutions where students get access, students like me get access um, here and receive these messages naturally, regularly. They see black excellence They see black administrators and black faculty who go above and beyond the call of duty, who see them as more than a number, see them as the vice president of the United States, Uh, you know, HBCU alumni, vice president Kamala Harris. Um, They see you on day one. My president says this all the time. You show up, you know, day one. 
you know, you might have COVID hair. Y'all can't see me on the podcast, but I've got a lot of hair because I've not been to the barbershop due to COVID in over <laughs> a year. And maybe someone would look at my hair and think that guy's not serious about himself. I have a tie on today, but what if I came in and I had a t-shirt on? And what if my pants were sagging a little bit because it was stylish. Right. It was culturally um, appropriate for me to do so to fit into my peer group. Right. Um And some people might see me and say he's not serious, he's not academic, he's not a scholar. But what I learned through my research before I had the pleasure to live it, sit in it, breathe it, is that there are some institutions where the educators, the administrators, the leaders look at a student with big hair and with brown skin or black skin, tall, short, LGBTQIA, Baptist, Pentecostal, doesn't matter, and they see excellence, they see opportunity, they see achievement, they see possibility. They see endless. And that is at historically black colleges and universities. So I studied it and I wrote about it before I ever had the experience to sit in the seat and realize it. And that's what motivated um, the report. I think it is absolutely the philosophical underpinnings that my president, Dr. Hakeem Lucas, saw when he thought it was important for us to seize this moment. Um, As Black Lives Matter converges with this global pandemic for us to create a space called the Center for the Study of HBCUs, where we curate and cultivate Black excellence and Black scholarship. Ooh, I love everything you said. It, 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 It puts a fire in my belly because I get so excited about talking about HBCUs. I'm a graduate of Tennessee State University, so I know well the the idea of teachers looking at you and seeing excellence and not only seeing it, but expecting you to live up to that, you know, expecting you to, to do those things and then students rising sort of to meet the occasion. So Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. pleasure. Thank you um, for, for affirming that. that and also for sharing your own story, you know, as a TSU graduate. Because, you know, I, again, I wrote about this stuff and I wrote about it because I read it as a graduate student. Um, you know, I, I earned my doctorate at Virginia Tech. Love the place. Love my doctoral experience. It, it equipped me for the career that I, I now live. Um, but if I and, and all of us should do this, right, if I'm to critique that experience at all, um, it was that I, I listened and I read on paper things like HBCUs operate like families. HBCU faculty go mm-hmm. above and beyond the call of duty. Um, HBCUs mm-hmm. are places where um, faculty have high expectations of students. And that is true. And you can write it and you can cite it, but... When you start thinking about what does that really look like? Well, I mean, you just heard Ashley say it as a graduate of TSU. Let me tell you, although I'm not a graduate of a HBCU, having now um, served as the provost or the chief academic officer at two, I can tell you what it looks like. It looks like, and my grandma, who is an HBCU Mm -hmm. graduate, she's deceased now, but she she got her degree in language arts. um, And she earned her degree in the 40s. And... um, language arts from Elizabeth City State University. My grandmother is the best example of this because I would watch my grandmother. She would 
you know, she taught in the school district, but she would also teach kids in her neighborhood at home on the weekend. She was a choir director. So sometimes between choir, choir rehearsal and church, mm -hmm. my grandmother might tutor a young person in the kitchen. And I would watch her talk to folks who look as diverse as the world. They, she would talk to young black kids who, you know, might stutter. And maybe that's a learning, a speech impediment, but maybe it's also anxiety and fear of being judged. And my grandmother would cultivate right. this space at the kitchen table that I know she could manufacture in her classroom that would signal to that young person, hey, uh, Johnny, first of all, you don't have to be afraid of me because I'm here to help you. And I believe you can do this. And she would walk him right. through the steps. It might be multiplication where she's saying, what's four times three? She would teach him. She would, you know, um, mimic it. She would show him how to do it, illustrate it. And then she'd give him examples of how to do it. But the part that I will never forget is the time I would watch my grandmother say, all right, Johnny, now it's your turn. What's four times five? And Johnny would say 17. No, no, no. What's four times five? He'd say 18. She said, now look, you are guessing. You might have to count on your fingers and toes, but listen to this, Ashley, and those listening to the podcast. My grandma would say, I am not leaving this table until you give me the answer because I know you can do it. That right there is what high expectation sounds like. It's when a faculty member says to yes. a student, um, you might not be interested in biology today, but we're going to work on it. You know what? You might not be interested in music mm -hmm. theory today. You might just be able to sing, but I believe that you can match that natural sort of talent with this instruction around theory, and it's going to perfect your art. And guess what? I'm not giving up until you do it. My grandmother would say she's not going to leave the table, but I have watched faculty at HBCU say, I'm not leaving until you graduate. I'm not leaving until you're in graduate school. I'm not going anywhere. And guess what? And even that is false because many of them keep those relationships with students beyond graduation into graduate school, into their careers. I've got students who come back to Virginia Union to look for a faculty member that they studied with 20 years ago knowing that that faculty member is there. High expectations right. is so important, but it is also how we do it, how we enact it, that really, I think HBCUs are a leader of this. PWIs have a lot to learn from HBCUs. And that's the, you know, that's that um, paradigm shift that really needs to happen in higher education where we often think right. it's the HBCUs and the HSIs that have to study from the others. And I think there's some sites of excellence, some, some um, specialty areas where we flip that paradigm and the other learns from us. You, you are so right about this. And it reminds me of, of a really quick story I'm going to share. My first year um, uh, of college, I went to a PWI and I was studying English. My, my degree is in English. And uh, I had a teacher that I had always been very gifted in this subject, but my, my English teacher um, that I don't even remember her name, and that that is telling. But she, uh, I, I turned to the paper, and she gave me a D. I was aghast. I couldn't believe it. How on earth could I have earned a D? And so I asked her about it, and she just said, "Well, I just don't think this was your best work." But I, and but she also said, "I know one day you would take my job." And so I asked her for more help, and I didn't really get what I needed to understand how I first made a D and how I could prevent that from happening again. 
I went on, I passed that class. In the summer after my freshman year, I decided to take an art class at TSU. And that changed my world because for the first time, I began to see more students who looked like me, more students who were interested in English, more students who had been, you know, classically trained musicians, more students who were just as diverse and had varied interests as, as, as I did. And when I got to my next English class with Professor Gordon, I turned in a paper to her and she said, Ashley, (laughs) I know you can do better than this. She goes, I love what you said, but how you said it needs work. And Professor Gordon sat with me, walked me through what I had done wrong and gave me advice on how to do it better. Because she said, I know that you can do this. I know that there is excellence in you and I'm here and I'm going to bring it out. And so that is like the difference between this professor whose name I can't even remember and Professor Gordon at TSU who said, Ashley, you can do better and I'm going to show you how. So you are are exactly right uh, on that. And I am the living, breathing embodiment of that. So thank you for saying it. So let's let's talk about uh, what HBCUs can expect from um, the Biden-Harris administration. In January, um, as part of your role with the center, I know you authored this widely referenced report, A Pledge of Allegiance to America's Historically Black Colleges and Universities, Key Priorities of the Biden-Harris Education Agenda. What are things that our listening audience should know about this report and maybe know Absolutely. about the agenda? Thank you for um, the opportunity to talk with folks about the report. I mean, I've had lots of folks say, well, what's, what do you want from the report? What's the motivation for the report? What were your objectives? How will you know if it was successful? And, you know, I think that my expectations are pretty simple for this. It's that I want it to provoke conversation and discussion. And so here I am talking to you in this podcast about it. Um, and so the opportunity to talk about the report Um, And then for people to talk about this podcast and to look at the report um, is exactly living out the objective for in the report. I highlight what the Biden Harris administration have identified as their key priorities in their education agenda. And I pull out um, the elements that I think um, have the most relevance for historically black colleges and universities. You know, I don't know how many people in your listening audience will know this. So I just want to grab the moment to say, listen, HBCU stands for historically black colleges and universities. There are 101 accredited. There are more, but there are 101 accredited HBCUs in the country right now. And we are supporting and cheering on our sister and brother institutions that are um, seeking reaccreditation or new accreditation. And they will increase that number. Um, historically black colleges and universities are not PBIs. They are not predominantly black institutions, although they are um, usually by definition. There are some historically black colleges that are not predominantly black. There are some historically black colleges that are predominantly white. um, And there are also 13 historically black colleges that are two-year community colleges. So there's a whole sector out there. And just that complexity alone, right? This, this, body, what I call in the report, these national treasures that educate, although they represent just 1% Mm -hmm. of the institutions in the United States, post-secondary institutions in the United States, they educate 300,000 plus college students. They educate 
a large number of Pell eligible students. Pell being an indicator of um, social class. So, you know, low, they, they do a great job of uh, punching above their weight and educating or training students, but they do a, an incredible um, job of providing access to higher education for low income and no income students, um, the HBCUs. Right. And so this sector is so diverse and so um, unique that it is clear that we need to focus on them, to study them, to do trends and analysis, to disaggregate our um, information and understanding by institutional control, to know what's going on with private HBCUs, like the institution where I work, um, and our public HBCUs, to know um, the needs and the challenges, the opportunities for our research HBCUs like Morgan State and Howard University um, and Prairie View and our institution, Seeking a Level Change, Virginia Union University, and how those unique challenges and opportunities are different from our um, liberal arts HBCUs, like my former institution, Lemoyne Owen College, Wiley College, um, you know, Edward Waters College, and even the community colleges in the um, sector, like Heinz Community College. And so you got to, we, we never do this mm -hmm. in the research. We talk about HBCUs as if they're just one group, monolithic, all the same. And so the Center for the Study of HBCUs is focused, uh, committed to that disaggregation of that information and providing a, a go-to resource, a clearinghouse for that kind of information. In the report, what we pull out are the pieces of the Biden-Harris administration that relate most directly to HBCUs. And I'm just going to review them for those who will never pick up the report. One is um, the Biden-Harris administration have made clear that they are going to invest resources in um, increasing the maximum um, award for Pell. I just told you HBCUs um, in my opinion, sort of um, over um, are overrepresented in the institutions that yep. provide access and support and educate Pell eligible students. Large number of Pell eligible students at HBCUs. So, if the Biden administration is successful, and it looks like they can be in increasing the maximum award, it's going to have huge implications for um, HBCUs. I spell out in the report for the they're they're proposing to sort of double the award from six thousand, just north of six thousand uh, dollars per year, to twelve thousand. And what that would mean um, is that uh, for most HBCUs, that would cover the cost of attendance for Pell students, you know, that they could mm -hmm. go to school and their entire, um, the, the current value of a Pell ward is $6,345. They're trying to double it. And that would significantly increase the Pell students' purchasing power. They could go to an HBCU and cover, for those who are in-state, 67% or more of the tuition and fees. The second thing is the Biden-Harris administration said, look, we're going to invest money into increasing research capability. That's going to help institutions like my own. We are, mm -hmm. you know, I would say that we operate as a research institution, but we've got a longer liberal arts tradition in history. A lot of our faculty were teaching faculty, not doing much um, 
at our founding in the way of research, over the course of time, we've built up our STEM programs. We've got people who are getting NSF awards and NIH awards and working with um, dealing with the public health disparities, especially those that are impacting us through this global uh, COVID pandemic. So my point is that as the Biden-Harris administration pours more money into building the research capability through making sure that federal grants are awarded to HBCUs, putting money into what they're calling centers of excellence, research excellence, where you might imagine in the future HBCUs would receive federal support to establish a center for excellence on, um, you know, um, diabetes or a center for excellence on the study of uh, morbidity and public health disparities or a center for excellence on um, STEM diversity. There could be a whole lot of different ones of these and that those dollars earmarked in that way will benefit HBCUs. Let me name a couple and then I'll highlight one more. They're talking about putting money into building infrastructure. This is going to be huge to build the infrastructure that's going to help us update facilities and buildings and labs and services. Look, HBCUs have been around for a long time. You know, they were founded when it was illegal mm-hmm. in most Southern states, all Southern states, but it was illegal to educate um, all of them. African-Americans. And they came out of, you know, this struggle in society, the race struggle that in 1862 states devoted land grants to states to establish institutions and because of the racist history of this country. And I know that's, you know, we just came out of Black History Month. It's a racist history, but it's also alive and well today in many um, different ways. It's systemic. It's not to blame or point fingers at anyone who's listening. It's simply to say it is systemic. It's embedded in our culture. It's in our infrastructure. It shows up in our policies in ways that we're not aware of, right? So that creates inequities. It's why what the Biden-Harris administration is talking about and making sure that federal dollars go to HBCUs is so critically important. Well, HBCUs didn't benefit in 1862 from the first land grant. So the states had to come around in 1890 with a much smaller program and made awards to states to sep- to create what they called separate but equal. And we all know that they ended up not being equal. So these HBCUs, what we call the 1890 institutions, have been around for a long time and they haven't had the resource to get updated, to keep the technology in, uh, updated. To, to do the kind of capital investments they need to do. And so building the infrastructure by updating facilities, labs, and services will benefit HBCUs in that way. There's a whole lot on their agenda about eliminating debt. And so look, HBCUs educate a lot of women, a lot of people of color, black indigenous people of color. Um, they educate a lot of Pell eligible or low income and no income students. Well, those students then get their degree and go out into the workplace. And until those who are listening to Ashley's podcast use their power and their gifts to help us change the world (laughs) and eradicate racism and eradicate sexism and remove these inequities. We still today, 2021, live in a world where folks like me, um, in, in average jobs will make less just because of our race, where women will make less than men just because of their sex, where LGBTQIA people will not only make less, but might be terminated or um, fired as a result of their sexual identity or sexual orientation. So we've got to fix all that, right? Um, and the reason why that's important in this conversation is um, that means we graduate, our graduates go on into work in a marketplace that will discriminate against them, not because they're not qualified, 
not because their training's not good, not because HBCUs gave them an inferior um, education like Jinx and Reisman wrote about in the Harvard Education and Re uh, Review back in the 60s. No, that is false. HBCUs are not uh, what they call them, academic disaster lands. No, they are sites of excellence. They are sites of opulence. But what happens is their graduates go off into a workplace where employers and CEOs and supervisors and managers make decisions upon hiring. And they look at the graduate from Harvard and the graduate from HBCU. You can fill it in. Howard, Virginia Union, uh, you know, uh, Wiley, Edward Waters, Alcorn, fill them all in. For those whose name I didn't, uh, you know, say, just shout out your own name of your institution. And they say, oh, I should pay the person at Harvard yes. more than the person at um, Winston-Salem because, and, and there are all sorts of things that play out in their mind, implicit bias, right? I think the person at Harvard got a better experience. I think the right. person at Harvard probably has more opportunities. I got to try to, you know, um, get them to come to me versus the competition. All those things play out in ways that mean HBCU graduates typically earn less. And over a course, a lifetime or a work lifetime, they have less disposable income to pay off their educational debt. So they are more likely to default or to go into um, extended forms of repayment. So anything that the Biden administration does to reduce, if not eliminate educational debt, will significantly benefit HBCUs and their graduates. The last one I want to talk about is the Title I. They're proposing to start a Title I in post-secondary mm -hmm. that's similar to what we have in K-12. I think that's going to be interesting, um, whether they can have, find the political support to, to do it is going to be an open question. The reason why I'm a little bit doubtful on that one is that generally in educational policy, um, we're not successful as a society when we pit K-12 and higher ed against each other. Because K-12 typically wins out because most people still operate from this assumption that college is an elective. College is, you know, um, it's the, the cost and the burden of college should fall to the individual. In my classes, I would talk about this as a private good. You want to go to college? You want to go to graduate school? Good. You and your family should pay for it. You go to K-12, okay, we'll pay the cost of that. Use our taxes to support schools and districts. That's a public good. But higher education is often seen as a private good, and most people don't um, typically support it. And I'm talking about the people, right, whose voices will be heard, we hope, through their elected officials who would actually ultimately vote on or act on some policy that the Biden administration has. I'll stop there for some more discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to kind of click in on two of the things that you um, mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, several, but I'm going to focus on two of them. Uh, the first is, is, is to kind of extend that Title I Conversation. So I know from my days as a K-12 reporter and working in um, at, at a state education department that uh, Title I funding is used for socioeconomically disadvantaged students, right? And so what I'm interested in learning from what has the Biden-Harris administration said it would do if it created a higher education version of Title I funding? So we know in K-12 it's used to give students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, additional supports and resources, what would that look like in a higher education space, regardless of whether they have the political capital or political will to get it done? That's what a great question. So let me like? give you <clears throat> sort of glimpse into the future, right? If they can find the political will to support this. And 
you know, and I think they have some policy alternatives too. That is, you could start a Title I um, for post-secondary. The other thing is that, and most of those who are in your listening audience and work at or have worked at or even pass by uh, HBCU will know that um, HBCUs have a federal um, revenue stream called Title III. That is the lifeline for historically mm-hmm. black colleges. And I, you know, I hope someone from the Biden Harris administration will listen to your podcast. And um, if they are, or when they do, or any of our elected officials, if we can't find support for establishing a whole new federal program like Title I at the post-secondary level, I do think there's opportunity to revise Title III in a way that removes some of the restrictions around supplanting or supplementing um, existing forms of support and expanding the list of um, legislatively legislatively allowable activities, right, to incorporate the things that we're thinking about in Title I, mm-hmm. which gets us right back to Ashley's question. What would it look like? We know this. We've opened up the higher education, access to higher education for a lot of folks. We've got you know, women, we've got students of color, black, indigenous people of color. We've got students living with disability. We've got veteran students. We've got low income and students in my studies over the year have said, Dr. Strayhorn, you always say low income. What about me? I'm no income. So we got low income and no income. We've got, you know, students from urban context. And here's the thing, each and every one of those groups and those who live at the intersections of multiple groups have unique challenges, right. needs, and strengths and opportunities. And um, higher education, especially historically black colleges, need to not only open up access, but do what Title I did for K-12. And what Title I did for K-12 really is it expanded opportunities to learn. For So a lot of K-12 Title I dollars Go to the four school, after school programs, summer school programs, supplemental programs, ways to expand and increase opportunities to learn. We need expanded opportunities to learn at the post-secondary level, right, that allow us to really deal with some of the educational gaps um, and to also provide longer on-ramps for some of our first-generation low-income, no-income, veteran students, students with disabilities, LGBTQIA students. So I think that it would look like, um, you know, uh, support for veteran students, veteran programs funded federally. Um, it would look like programs. Listen, I don't know who in your listening audience knows it's not normally in my bio, but I had my first child born to me as a freshman at the University of Virginia. I was a student parent and no one else was a student parent. It felt like I was by myself. I mean, not just no black students, no black, white, Latino, nobody had dependents as a freshman mm-hmm. at my institution. They, they do exist, but they were not freshmen at the University of Virginia, right, when I was there. And so we have learned that student parents have needs. They need programs, wraparound programs and support services. Title I for post-secondary could provide that. Um, I started studying foster youth several years ago, and some of my graduate students who are now turned faculty have continued that work. We've been collaborating on it. We know that, you know, we don't know enough about first uh, former foster youth who find their way into higher education right? Look, under 10% of them ever earn their mm-hmm. degree without our support, they will not be successful. But the kind of support they need is both financial and emotional and social and career 
and vocational. And I don't mean vocational in a techie kind of way. I mean, that helps them think about how do I, you know, what they talk about in the foster care world about how do I assume independent adult living, but in a higher ed context is how do we as, as educators create spaces where students who um, age out of the foster care system um, can develop the skills in a supportive environment that will equip them, not just for college life and a career, but for independent adult living, right? Especially when they have had the benefit of a social um, welfare and a social support system, social care, <coughs> excuse me, support system throughout their time in foster care, right? So this is about, you know, financial literacy and banking and budgeting and um, personal care and um, all yeah. of that. I think that right. comes through a foster, you know, program, that's campus-based. Now the question on most provosts who are going to listen to this podcast and vice president's line is, how do I pay for it? It's exactly what Ashley's saying. Comes through a Title I for post-secondary education. Lastly, we know that students, college students, um, you know, all across the country, I think, are hit by food and housing insecurities. That The, the cover yes. on that was ripped off by the COVID crisis. Um, and in some ways, some of these problems were exacerbated by this crisis. And so we've got to deal with food securities, insecurities. We've got to make sure, and it's not about food um, availability, right? I don't, I'm not talking about give students food for today. I'm talking about security of the provision, that they know they have food for next week and next month. Um, housing insecurities. It's not about just making sure that they can stay in the residence halls today or this, this semester, but housing mm. security, that they have comfort and security and safety knowing that their basic physiological needs like food and housing are in place. Now the question is, oh my goodness, where are we going to find the money to fund that? Food pantries and um, you know, year-round housing. I got to tell you, I know now the costs associated with keeping my residence halls open um, through winter break, through the summer, um, you know, in hot weather, in cold weather. Through a pandemic, and which, by the way, means we got to physically distance people and people can't, they got to wear masks and I've got to have signs in the residence hall telling people about the new precautions. All of that are the costs that fall on the shoulders of the policymakers and the leaders and um, the Title I for post-secondary education provides one revenue stream that allows us to deliver on this much needed promise to our students. Yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. Thank you for ex explaining that and expounding what that might look like. So another thing that I wanted to kind of just double tap into is this idea of strengthening sort of the research capability for HBCUs. So when I look at the HBCU landscape, I often see a lot of teaching institutions, right? Th these people, they, they're, they're just teaching students to get degrees. So that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of room for thought leadership or, you know, the, the time to pursue these sort of large scale multi-year research grants. It seems to me, based on what I've seen, like there are the times when HBCU campuses receive those grants is in association with 
or in partnership with um, a predominantly white institution, or they miss out on it altogether. So how do you think strengthening the research capacity at HBCU campuses will ultimately transform the black college Absolutely. landscape? That's such a good point that, you know, and it's, again, going back to the, the purpose of the center, the center um, and using data from the Department of Education and from all of the historically black colleges and universities in this country can um, quantify for individuals what proportion of our sector is comprised of teaching institutions. And, you know, um, in many ways, the HBCU sector, it is, it is distinct. It is unique. There are unique elements to it. Um, <clears throat> you know, how shared governance gets enacted and played out. Um, the dynamics between the board and the president how boards get selected. Um, you know, I think Black Lives Matter has shown, um, you know, the unapologetic commitment to equity, diversity, anti-Black racism, and the way that we can, um, we can admit and openly um, affirm our commitments to those space make us distinct from some of our peer institutions in the country. Right. But we are also part of this larger enterprise mm -hmm. of higher education. Um, and that, you know, there were times at my previous institution as vice president at Lemoyne Owen College, I, re I thought I was dealing with the HBCU kind of problem. And what I realized is there were days I was dealing with something that was unique to the culture. But there were also some days that I was dealing with problems that <clears throat> are um, on the agenda of every provost at a small liberal arts college. Right. So when I started thinking of the enrollment at that time was under a thousand students. Um, and when I was thinking about how to work with the enrollment manager who, who directly reported to me on identifying new markets and then building a plan that would allow us to capitalize those markets and maximize our enrollments. Um, that's not an HBCU problem. That's not unique to us. All Lots of institutions, not even just liberal arts nowadays, right. lots of institutions, especially because of the pandemic, are thinking about this. Well, um, there are also, you know, PWIs that are research one institutions. And then there are institutions that aspire to be research institutions. The same is true for HBCUs. So it gets to your point that we've got a lot of teaching institutions. That is their historic commitment. And though I am provost at Virginia Union, which is comprehensive, um, private, historically black college that has a strong commitment to research and innovation, and it is only going to grow. We have launched eight new graduate programs in just this academic year, um, and that's going to double by next year. And we'll have a whole graduate school with PhDs and master's programs, and those faculty um, we'll be doing research and training graduate students who will go on to faculty careers. Um, but in that, in that seeking that level of change and um, acquiring that research status, we will commit, recommit to our teaching mission, right? Because students don't come to Virginia Union. Um, I like to tell my faculty, they don't come for our buildings. They don't come for the lights. They don't come for the parking spaces. They come to get an education. And so teaching and learning is critically mm -hmm. important to that. Um, my point is <clears throat> that it seems to me 
that there will be teaching institutions in the HBCU sector who will focus on the curriculum teaching and learning. That as the Biden-Harris administration achieves success in strengthening the research capacity by pouring what they're presuming to be $10 billion into strengthening research capacity, there will be HBCUs that do one of three things. One, there'll be institutions that are research institutions already. They've got really big operations in terms of laboratories. Usually they've got something in the space, um, the medical space. I don't know if it's a medical school or if it's a nursing school, osteopathic medicine. I think we will watch the emergence of those kinds of programs, public health. We have our own new MPH here at Virginia Union. But, you know, you'll see these these grow and it will um, represent the what we used to call mission creep. I don't think that term is appropriate really in this case. I think it's mission expansion. I think it's incremental progress. I think it's growing and becoming, um, you know, uh, more based on the opportunity and the strengths mm-hmm. that are being identified by the leaders. So we'll watch some institutions do that. As they do that, they will benefit. They will reap that those research dollars through grants, through investments, through centers through competitive contracts at the federal level. The second thing I think some HBCUs will do is other than those that are already um, doing some of that, then you'll watch some HBCUs who will identify niches, right? They will not build a whole medical school, but they'll realize they've always had a really sweet spot around training people in climate change or training folks in political science who might be able to um, address big environmental problems, Um, or that their health sciences and STEM really serves as an on-ramp into cancer research and so forth. And so these, what we call sort of, I don't know if it's an allied health kind of growth in that space, but we'll watch (coughs) some institutions identify their niche, build um, programs, that address that area, as well as um, laboratories, institutes, um, centers, sites of excellence, where those dollars through grants and contracts will drive that work. What will also happen is similar to what we've done here is they'll diversify their faculty classification system. So even those teaching institutions, they'll have a cadre of faculty who will remain committed to teaching the undergrad, teaching the common cur- the core curriculum. But you'll, you'll see the emergence of research faculty at HBCUs, distinguished professors at HBCUs, clinical faculty at HBCUs, who will have very different workloads, who will, you know, who might be a faculty member in name, but never go into a classroom, spend most of their time, maybe even off campus, off site in some discovery unit or research institute that really is driving that discovery and research agenda. And then the last and final is, I think centers like the Center for the Study of HBCU will also be important to this because where it doesn't happen um, in terms of the medical school or the professional and scientific spaces, where it doesn't happen in the allied health or in the niche spaces, then institutions will start to partner with like-minded research groups like the Center for the Study of HBCUs Um, Because we say that we curate and we cultivate Black scholarship and Black scholars, but we also connect and convene, all these C words, um, connect and convene with institutions. Mm -hmm. I've already seen this where we're we're working with some institutions now thinking about how we can pull their scientific expertise together in a package that is attractive 
to one or two federal agencies who are really trying to look at some public health disparity work on the one hand and then some military science work on the other. Mm -hmm. That's good. Good stuff. So there's often sort of the thought that with each presidential election, there are these candidates to sort of get on the campaign trail and they make promises in communities or promises to certain special interest groups that they can't always live up to or maybe even never actually intend to live up to. Are there some early signs that the Biden-Harris administration actually tends to actualize what it has proposed for HBCUs? Now, you're asking me. So let me um, say <laughs> that, you know, this is Terrell Strayhorn's opinion based on the question. It does not represent the opinion of my employing institution. <laughs> I cannot speak for everyone who's affiliated yes. with the center. Um, but I can tell you this. Um, I would say that it may be fair to say that it's a little too early to tell. But it seems to me okay. that the answer is yes. And I'll give you some specific um, pieces. But I want to, first of all, just affirm and appreciate you nailing the point that um, the, the audience needs to hear. You know, those of you who listen to this recording or this broadcast, please forward it to your friends in the Biden-Harris administration or any administration. By the way, we're talking about Biden-Harris. But Biden-Harris, you know, administration, their, their uh, scope of work is influenced by our local work. And so, you know, talk to your elected right. officials in your city, in your town, on your school board, at your institutions, your state representatives and senators, you know, share this broadcast, tell them your opinion. It, you, COVID taught us, you know, you don't have to wait until the convention center is available anymore. You can get a Zoom link and bring a whole bunch of people together to talk about important matters. And you don't have to be president of the United States to do so. You can use your social media. You can use Zoom in the listening audience to convene a group to talk about what Ashley is sharing uh, even today. So I just want to affirm that because there has been this history of broken promises to the black community, to communities of color, to the black indigenous people um, of colored communities, to um, vulnerable populations, to the foster youth of this nation, to anyone who's been marginalized or left at the margins. And um, we're better than that. Democracy requires us to be better than that. And I got to tell you that, as we said in the report, the center is going to be watching and tracking the delivery of the administration and the administrations on these promises, uh, the six that are laid out in the report. And we're going to be sharing updates with the community through our reports and through our podcast, or not podcast, what we call a webcast, um, <clears throat> and other mechanisms sharing progress. But let me tell you what they've done. The Biden-Harris administration has already, before, um, you know, before Black History Month, which is significant and symbolic, two S's, um, the Biden-Harris administration pulled together all of the presidents and provosts and executive leaders of all HBCUs. And they did it before February 1st, which okay. makes it record fast for a new administration. Has not happened that fast before. Um, and they talked with um, you know, HBCU leaders about these elements of their policy agenda. And they came and they promised delivery of a timeline with metrics that can be progress or, or assessed toward progress. So that is significant. 
that the they brought the group together. They did it in a record time. And they didn't wait until Black History Month to do it when, you know, a whole lot of folks wanted to talk about and meet with and see Black folk in Black History Month. Um, but they did it before. The other thing that they've done is mm-hmm. you can see this. They're starting to already through um, a number of bills and policies embed the kind of financial commitment that they've promised for research, for Pell, for, uh, you know, forgiveness of educational debts. They did a huge thing. And, and I'll make this my last for HBCUs. And that is this forgiveness of federal <clears throat> capital loans for the institutions where institutions that borrowed from the federal government for all sorts of capital projects um, who have millions of dollars tied up in these loans. Um, there's a really big um, bill that's one segment or one wave of it has already been acted on, the others yet to come, that is forgiving that debt. And what that's going to do is it's going to remove the financial burden off the shoulder of these national treasures that allowed them to use their dollars differently. And I think it allows us to use our dollars to do the good work that we are known for doing, to help students, to be student driven and student focused, to um, you know be more competitive in recruiting those faculty that we need to teach our students, um, to build up our infrastructure for the labs and the services that we've been talking about today with, uh, with you, Ashley. And, you know, <clears throat> to also make sure that um, we are building the kind of sustainable and durable partnerships with the local community. This is what COVID has mm-hmm. um, also pointed out already. <clears throat> COVID has shown us that if we thought we lived in a post-racial society, we don't. If we thought there was trust between all communities of color, all, all, com- all racial communities, they don't, right? And so as the administration... Mm-hmm has been trying to deal with the COVID crisis through the vaccination program, they are already realizing that Black institutions, and that becomes Black churches, Black colleges, Black um, businesses, become critical partners to being able to vaccinate Mm -hmm. those communities. Because I got to tell you, there are folks who will come to my campus who will never go to some other campuses in the state of Virginia, not only because they can't get to it, um, you know, geographically, but because of just the thing you're talking about, this these broken promises over the years and the history of distrust. And so HBCUs emerge as critical partners. And so we're also doing our job um, to build those sustainable, durable partnerships with local communities, with our sister brother, PWI, peer institutions throughout the state, Um, And we're going to continue to do that. I think those are really good signs that we're on to something and that this is more than Mm -hmm. just talk. I love it. So I I got two more questions for you. So what do you think HBCU leaders and advocates should be asking for in this moment of racial reckoning and in this economic crisis that has been spurred on by this global pandemic. We said that there are early signs that they want to actionalize what they've set out to do, but what is it that leaders and advocates need to be asking for while we have so, their attention? I mean, you know, I wouldn't dare let the opportunity go by without saying loud and clear finances, resources, 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 because if you think about it, you know, what, is the difference 
um, between what an HBCU can do and a comparable PWI can do. Um, you know, they, they both have mm-hmm. curricula. They both have faculty. They both have students. You know, prior to COVID, uh, most instruction happened in a classroom or a laboratory. Now we're all online. So, you know, COVID becomes that sort of great equalizer in a way. Um, but what does distinguish us and separates is, you know, just significant um, sizable gaps in terms of resources. And a lot of the resources that mm-hmm. some HBCUs enjoy and have access to are restricted dollars, right? They're grant dollars or they're contract right. dollars or they're Title III dollars that have um, allowable expenses and unallowable expenses. And some institutions that have more resources, that have bigger bigger budgets, that have larger endowments, that have um, more uh, alumni who have disposable uh, income to give back to the institution, have the freedom to use their dollars as they want to create, to innovate, to, to meet needs and, and um, create and fund uh, new ideas that have not been tested yet. They, they Listen to this. This is important for those who are right. listening who are thinking about building programs and re-engineering programs. They are free to experiment, to fail, right? But when it, with the dollars, when they're restricted, you can't fail on federal dollars. You can't fail on grant dollars. You got to go where it is tested. And so it reduces um, the opportunity for experimentation and innovation and trying out new new things. So I think every leader listening should say to the administration, we need more money. We money, 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 finances, finances. Um, the second thing is, <laughs> and, and, and that all that do- those dollars should not be restricted. They should not be earmarked. Um, right. Don't crowd out how the dollars are used. That's why I find what McKinsey Scott did to give dollars to so many institutions, including historically black colleges. And so many of those dollars were unrestricted where institutions can identify their needs and, um, and do what they need to do with the dollars. I think that is, that is, that's got promise for the future. Um, but here's the other thing I think administrators and leaders and HBCU champions ought to do while we've got their attention. And that is, you know, we have the movements have moment and they have momentum, but they also have a moment of adjournment where it moves on to something else. So this won't last always, you know, um, there's a, uh, my grandmother, when she was alive, she used to sing the song, trouble won't last always. Well, you know, um, this movement won't last always. We won't always have this attention. So what I think I would advise us to do is there will be one off investments. There will be one off ideas Mm -hmm. in meetings. I think what we ought to do while we're championing for more dollars and resources is also champion and ask for the institutionalization of these policies, programs, um, priorities, right? So a lot of people don't, they, they want, you know, it now and they want it on the podcast and they want it right. in the news. And that's great. We need to call attention to HBCUs and they're getting good recognition. But when the cameras turn a different direction or when the lights turn off or when the fanfare is gone, what I'm hoping we still have is 
um, that it was institutionalized. This commitment to the development of HBCUs and the research capacity was institutionalized and formalized through policy. That this commitment to dealing with the educational debt problem and expanding opportunity to education through the um, expansion of federal aid programs like Pell, that it found its way into policies, that the policies gave way to programs mm -hmm. <clears throat> that don't happen <clears throat> just as one-time summer bridge programs, but they show up on our campuses in um, new facilities, <clears throat> new degree programs um, that are that they're durable, that can withstand the test of time. So to wrap it up, as we talk to them and we hear them, and they're good ideas that we listen and we ask for more resources and dollars, but we also ask for more policy. Write it down, formalize it, enact it, um, legislate it. And I put that in the report because, um, you know, every administration, uh, presidential administration, they got four years. They might have eight, but we can't, mm -hmm. um, we can't assume that that will happen. And I think if we've learned anything over the course of time is that um, four years passes very quickly. And so I think when we start dealing with the equity question through policy programs and these, um, these more durable commitments, it will last, it will extend beyond one administration. Mm -hmm. I like to call Ooh, it policy like program Three partnership. P's. I'm all That's about the, got <clears throat> the multiple letters. Yeah. So yes. ask the partnership. You know, I think here's the other thing. <laughs> you know, they've got this proposal. You alluded to it, Ashley, where, you know, they're they're trying to deal with the whole fact that a good deal of the federal government's budget, uh, the federal government's investment in R&D, research and development, never comes to historically black colleges. Mm -hmm. A very small fraction ever finds its way to HBCUs. It goes predominantly to um, predominantly white institutions. And in the report, I call out, you know, like John Hopkins receives huge um, proportions of this dollars. And that's, you know, they, they are a major powerhouse research university. You know, they are the go-to resource. If you look up, uh, you want to know what are the current stats for COVID? It's John Hopkins who's providing that um, information. And, but we also need to create a world where our HBCUs can also be um, at the table. And, and, and there, there's, there's need right. for it, right? Because maybe John Hopkins, it's no slap against them. World-class institutions got great respect, respect for them. And I got good friends who work there. So um, they can keep doing that. But maybe there is a parallel um, dashboard about how COVID is impacting black and brown communities that's providing up-to-date information about cases and morbidity and deaths disaggregated by race and social class and how essential workers and frontline workers are disproportionately showing up and that that dashboard is built at a historically black college and it is funded through the dollars that the Biden-Harris administration are earmarking for research and maybe it is stood up through a center for excellence. I just... That's that's an idea that can be enacted today through the way that the administration is um, thinking. So it reminds me, I'm hearing myself. I appreciate this couple of extra seconds to say that because then for the leaders of the HBCU sector and the champions, when we talk to the administration, we need to come with these ideas that their job is to, you know, drive the policy and to come up with the agenda. But I, I hope we will come with good ideas like that, that are specific that can be acted upon 
that we can tell them which institutions are ready to become the center of excellence for the COVID rates and who has mm-hmm. the, the faculty capacity or the public health capacity to do it. And, you know, I think I often hear people say that um, Oprah said this, so I think I will give her attribution, although I'm not sure. I haven't tested this, but I think it's Oprah who once said, you know, you should never walk around not knowing what you need because you never know if you'll bump into someone like her who could erase or eliminate your debt. And if you bumped into Oprah and Oprah said, look, Ashley, I'm here to take care of all your problems, financial problems. What are they? And if you had to say, okay, Oprah, give me two weeks to go home and calculate and compute how much I owe to. No, no, no. You need to know, Oprah, I need, I need $917,000 and 52. That's what we want. Well, applied to this, this scenario. Um, I hope that as we go to the table and we sit with the administration, we're able to give our best ideas we're able to identify the best of our institutions and the talent and where the partnerships, as Ashley said, can be created. But we can also say to them, look, we need resources. And my institution needs $13,712. I'm just giving out a number, right? And we can nail it like that because <laughs> I think we can seize the opportunity. Um, and listen, it's the way to close on the title of the report. We can make sure that they deliver on this pledge of allegiance to our nation's national treasures, the historically black colleges and universities. Absolutely. I love it. I just want to point out also that (laughs) Oprah is an alum of Tennessee state university. I just, I just had to get that in there while I could. Uh, So this is uh, my, my very last question. And it's the question that I ask every guest. And that is what is the one thing you wish more people knew about HBCUs. One thing that I wish people, oh my gosh, just one, you know, um, just one, (laughs) you know, I I will close where I began. And in many ways, I'm glad. Thank you for the question because it just affirms the importance of the work that we are doing and will do through the center for the study of HBCUs. Um, with our executive director, the director, um, we're building a team, um, the faculty fellows, we have a senior fellow in the center. um, And it's just so clear that we need to seize this moment as well to push back against this narrative about HBCUs, um, to tell the story of HBCUs. I mean, you all now know because of Ashley, y'all know two graduates of TSU, Tennessee State University, (laughs) which is a fantastic um, institution (laughs) in my favorite city on earth, the Nashville, Tennessee area. Um, And under the leadership of Dr. Glenda Glover, right? Um, And Virginia Union University, my Mm -hmm. own institution where I work as provost. We started as a prison. That's what our founding was. We were a prison for black slaves and now the prison becomes the university the same place that was once a space devoted to imprisoning holding captive black people black bodies is now the same site that is unapologetically committed to their liberation their enlightenment their expansion their development that is a powerful story let me tell you virginia union has produced gobs of incredible graduates like the first elected black governor in the United States, L. Douglas Wilder, 
who is the namesake of our library. He's also the former governor of Virginia. Um, Samuel Dewitt Proctor, who many people will know, goes on to be a university president, a great theologian. I'd be here all day, right? I could pass the mic. I started earlier talking about Vice President Kamala Harris, graduate of Howard University. I talked about Senator Warnock from um, Georgia, a Morehouse graduate. Um, You know, I used to work at Ohio State University with Joyce Beatty. And Joyce Beatty, who's an elected official, she's also now the head of the Congressional Black Caucus. She's a um, Central State University Mm -hmm. um, graduate, and that's at HBCU. So, you know, it's just incredible what HBCUs have done. But your question, right? What is it I want them to know? I want you to know that. I want you to know that HBCUs didn't just show up today starting to produce Black excellence. And by the way, it's not just Black excellence. It's excellence in their graduates. We've been doing it since their founding. Um, Forever. You know, I want you to know that, yeah, I get it. Black lives do matter. And yesterday I had on a shirt that said Black lives matter. I realize that Black lives matter is an important social movement in this country. And Black lives, um, you know, you know, and people always say, well, black lives matter. Don't all lives matter? Here's the thing. All lives can't matter until black lives matter. Because if black lives don't ever matter, we, we're a part of the all. So black lives matter. But here's my point about HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Black lives have always mattered at HBCUs. It wasn't a movement. We didn't get woke about that in 2019 or 2020. Uh, black lives mattered at HBCUs since their founding. So for those who are listening, If you were listening to this podcast and you say, what's the one thing that Terrell wants you to know? I want you to know that HBCUs have been punching above their weight since their founding. They've been producing strong leaders for the black community and the broader community since their founding. And listen, we are diverse just because we're historically black doesn't mean we're exclusively black. I am black, um, but my faculty aren't all black. My leadership team, I've got white deans and black deans and Latinx deans. I have um, deans who studied at HBCUs and some who didn't. I've got faculty who are black, white, LGBTQIA, tall, short, um, some in the humanities, some in theology. I've got women and men. So I think, and I always meet people who say, um, you know, so I'll bring in a speaker, right, to, to meet with my faculty. They say, oh my gosh, I, I expected all your faculty to be black. And I'm thinking to myself, why? Where'd you get that from? Right? We, the, we are historically black. We are not. So too is true for the most important sector of our campus community. That is our students. Our students are diverse. They are black. They are Hispanic. They are Latino. They are Latina. They are Latinx. They get to decide for themselves which uh, identity uh, term matters most for them or resonates with the way they see themselves. They are Native American. They're living with disabilities. They are foster youth. And so I just want you to know that we are not new to this. We have been doing it since our founding and that we are just as diverse as the world and the communities that we serve. Yes, I love that. I absolutely love your final thought. I love this because I think in the absence of good storytelling, people (laughs) make up the story themselves. And so I am glad that you are here to correct and affirm the narrative of excellence around HBCU campuses. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us uh, today. Um, I hope that you all... 
enjoyed what you heard here today and that you tune in to the next episode of the On The Yard podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of On The Yard, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. R.W. Jones is the nation's only strategic communications and issues management firm explicitly focused on higher education, serving more than 50 colleges and universities nationwide. Check back for next week's episode of On The Yard, where we'll give you another dose of HBCU leadership and culture.